The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Nation coming off fresh off their college World Series berth. Former Indiana Wesleyan head coach Rich Benjamin joins us. This guy is a winner. He has won every place he has gone, and I appreciate how he takes a business mindset to the game of baseball. Running a college baseball program or coaching any team or leading any organization is so much more than what happens between the white lines. Renowned as one of the best recruiters in the country, we dig into how he turned around this college baseball program and took them from the doormat to the conference champions, and then to the NAI World Series for the first time in their school's history. Rich, welcome to the Dugout CEO. Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been following your career for a while now. You've won everywhere you've went as a college baseball coach. All of it, Nazarene, uh, as some know, home of Ben Zobris, World Series MVP, and the lesser known, which I know you know, Rich, Alex Childers, former Goshen College uh, baseball coaching great, and uh, then Judson, and then what you did at Indiana Wesleyan. It's just cool to get you on the show and talk about baseball and life and all that kind of fun stuff, so thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you. So originally, the first time I got to see you kind of coach was at Indiana Wesleyan. You took over this program in, what was it, 2016? 2016, yes, sir. So talk about that. You came off a very successful career over at Judson. 2016 Indiana Wesleyan and I was kind of following Indiana Wesleyan because I was doing a little bit of coaching and consulting in that conference and then you just came in with a totally new like energy and enthusiasm and you turned that program around like let's talk about that a little bit and then we'll get into some baseball stuff because I'm just fascinated with people that win wherever they go talk about Indiana Wesleyan how you came across the opportunity and what you did to turn them into a winner Year one was a lot of fun. Um, when we came in as a staff, the the team was seven straight years under 500, and the kids were hungry to learn. A very very coachable group of guys. They cared a lot about each other, and the work ethic was really really good. And so, uh, I've always been a huge believer of just simplicity. And so for us, it was just we got to get in the weight room as a group four days a week. We've got to eat 4,000 calories a day. We have to train with a purpose. And every player just needs to play to their identity, whatever their strength is. And so we had a senior third baseman, uh, Craig Nesselhoff, big, big, big kid, never hit a home run in college in three years. And he hit 10 uh, his senior year. And it was just somebody where it was like really simple of just, hey, like this is kind of who you are. And if we go ahead and match your identity with your training, uh, there's a chance for you to get to whatever your ceiling is. And we had another, we had a pitcher, senior, uh, Brian Beachy, left-handed pitcher. I mean, really good feel for the changeup. Uh, breaking ball was average. And uh, so we just told him, you get one breaking ball a game. Uh, you can throw it whenever you want. Uh, and it got hit hard, I feel like, almost every time, that one time. Uh, but you're just going to be a two-pitch guy, your fastball changeup. Um, so he was able to touch those pitches more often. And... He really developed a feel for how to add and subtract on the changeup. And so he ended up striking out you know, just over a guy in inning. He was a first-team all-conference player. 
we had a, a lot of really cool stories like that. Uh, Brandon Schaefer came in from LC State at the break, uh, hit like 18 home runs for us. Uh, and then Derek Showman, who's now the hitting coach, assistant hitting coach for the Minnesota Twins, uh, he came in as well and gave us some presence in the middle of the lineup. And so that team went from like three home runs the year before to I think 52 uh, in that year. And the team ERA dropped about two. Um, they just responded because the commitment level we asked from them uh, was, was really high. Um, and they just showed up every day and they care a lot about each other. And if there's one mistake I made with that group, and I think this happens in leadership, that team um, made it to the national tournament for the first time in school history. And we went down to uh, Auburn Montgomery and beat LSU Shreveport while we were there. Uh, so it was a really good trip. And in the post meeting at the hotel with the team, you know, we honored the work that they did, but then we talked about what the next steps were for the program. The timing of that was probably poor. Uh, I think those things can wait um, so that you're truly honoring the group that's in the room right now and not just focused on like building and what's next. But I mean, that's the nature of learning and growth. And, but it was a really fun group to coach, really enjoyable. Yeah, so that 2016 season, do you remember any team ever playing four outfielders against you? I do. I do. Yep. And uh, what what kind of crazy coach would do something like that? Because I remember I was on the bench, you know, Alex Childers, head coach at Goshen College. Mm -hmm. We're heading down to Wesleyan. And at this point in the season, we weren't having a great season. And we were trying mm -hmm. to figure out how do we beat a team that's far superior than us in talent. Right. And we're like, they hit the ball. So where do we go? We go with four outfielders. And the problem, I think, Rich, was the rules wouldn't allow us to put an outfielder beyond the fence. We had to put all the outfielders in the outfield because I think you guys hit five home runs and we were just trying to figure it out. But you saw us playing four outfielders. Like what was going on in your head? I'm a huge fan of creativity. Um, I think <laughs> you got to look at your personnel, whatever team you're coaching in that moment that day. And you've got to, I think competitors are creative. Competitors don't just walk in and say, we're just going to try to do this the way everybody does it unless the way everybody does it matches the personnel in the day. So for us, it was just when I see teams shift on us and so forth, like, I mean, I like it. We've done a little bit of it ourselves uh, over the years. And, you know, what it does is like it can expose a player to see if that player has like prepared for that moment. Because we would shift on certain players in the league because that's who you had the most data on. And you would see them just like completely try to rebuild their approach in game. And now they're just trying to be somebody they're not. I mean, if you're a dead pole guy in the air for juice and then we put extra guys over there and now you're trying to like flip the ball the other way, it's going to be a long weekend for you. And so it creates another coachable moment, another place of leverage possibly for a team. Um, you know, we had it done against us several times, Lucas Gooden, early in his career for us, they shifted a lot and we just told him like, try to hit it 95 miles an hour. And if you do that, it doesn't matter as much. And so he just focused on trying to be who he was. And, um, I think that's the best way to, to try to be successful in that moment. I remember in 2015, uh, the talent that was on the field and in 2016, it was just different. Was it, you recruited different players or was it you developed the ones that you currently had or a mixture of both? Well, we graduated the bulk of the 2016 team. Uh, and so 2017, we had to bring in a huge class. I want to say 25 to 28 players. 
and we got a late start on those guys. Um, at Indiana Wesleyan, you're successful with a four-year recruiting model as opposed to a transfer model. Uh, it just matches the institution, the resources, the identity of the school well. And so we didn't get started until late August, early September on that recruiting class for the following year. And the strength of that class is half those kids became really foundational in the success of the program, establishing culture, winning on and off the field, academic, spiritual growth, everything. And the other half, it just wasn't a fit. And, you know, and a lot of that was like on us where we just didn't have the time to do enough homework on everybody. Um, and so, you know, and then also like what was our messaging and recruiting at that time and so forth. Because Indiana Wesleyan is such a beautiful campus. I mean, you can attract a lot of different people, um, but we don't want people to come for the resources. We want people to come for the transformational experience. And we had to, you know, get better as a staff to learn how we're going to message who we are to attract who we are. Uh, so that part was on us. And um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a good group of guys, but it was like a rebuilding of the culture because we had graduated so many the year before. So part of building, whether it's a business or a baseball program, it's recruiting the right people and it's developing people to be, you know, the best version. Mm -hmm. Recruiting talent. What did that look like for you? One, how did you go about the process of, hey, this is somebody we even want on our team versus mm -hmm. how did you then go to convince them that this is a place that they need to be? Sure. Well, I think one of my, like, if I evaluate like leadership failures or, you know, recruiting that didn't work out, there's always a lot of layers and reasons why to that. But one of the common themes that I would notice is like, you learn a lot from your best players and your best people. And after missing in some areas, I spent about a solid year just researching hiring processes. I mean, I read everything that Harvard Business Review had on so forth and like just trying to get a feel for is there a way to improve this? They don't tell you this when you get into coaching, you know, that it's like, it's everything else but bats and balls are the most important part. And uh, I think where I landed from the literature and from experience was, we wanna hire based on humility, motor being their work ethic, and then skill set. So we wanna recruit that way. And if it's a staff member, we wanna hire that way. And a lot of times, in recruiting or if you're in business and you're trying to build a staff, that order can get out of whack really fast. Somebody can have a great skill set, but they don't like have humility, which we define as like the desire to keep growing and the desire to be a part of a group and not just self. So like those two pieces of humility and then motor being work ethic and then skill set. If somebody's skill sets in first place of those three, I have not seen very often where that like ended well. But when humility and motor were both present in the top two, the skill set continued to improve over time. And so when we evaluate recruits or we go through interview processes for assistant coaches here in the last couple of years, um, that's a big part of the process is, is looking at uh, that piece and, and making sure that the questions that we're asking the different people that we're going in front of, um, different committees and so forth, uh, the coaches and, and everything else that we're talking to and recruiting, that we're trying to answer those three questions. It's really good. We had a probably a similar model 
Um, and mine was work ethic. It was, is this person a hard worker? And when we would recruit people to come work for us, we would go back to their college baseball coach and I'd ask what type of player was he? Cause I wanted the guy that was first in and last out. How did you figure out the answers to the skill set seems easy, right? You've seen them do it before you watch them play, but work ethic and humility. How did you actually figure out if they had those two things? Well, I think you have to develop a skill set for asking really good open-ended questions and then chasing their answers with more open-ended questions. So a perfect recruiting visit is when they talk more than you do. Um, a perfect hiring process is when the other person is talking more than the person that's doing the hiring. And I think that's one part of it. The other part is like, you got to like figure out who else is in their network and in their community and connect with those people. Um, so it might be connecting with coaches and counselors and teachers, uh, teammates, people on our team that are friends with them, uh, people that we're recruiting that have played against this person and just gather all that information together from the individual and then everything around them to like put that story together. It feels like you're, you know, you're a fantastic college baseball coach and then you got people that are in business, but you're really in the people business more than you are, like you said, the bats and the balls and the product or the service that you're offering. These Harvard Business Reviews and all this education, what made you dig into really becoming a student of the game rather than just, hey, I'm focused on the stuff that happens between the white lines? What really made you say, hey, you know what, I really want to study and learn how to improve my craft? I just, uh, early on in the coaching career, I reached out to a bunch of coaches just to be able to be like, hey, can I ask you questions? Um, and I heard back from the most successful coaches I reached out to and the coaches that weren't successful that I reached out to, I never heard back from. And the ones that I heard back from who were successful, they were lifetime learners. Um, they never stopped and said, oh, I got it all figured out. We'll just ride this out for the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, they were lifetime learners. Um, they were successful, but yet they were still unsure at times of, is this really the best way to go about it? Or should I be pivoting in this place to, to make it more efficient and a better experience for the people that I serve? They just never stop asking questions. They never stop growing. And so I looked at it like, I wanted to find a way to develop the skill sets that would work in other areas of life and then apply them to baseball because the most successful coaches that I had found, they carried themselves in such a way that if they were hired by another company outside the sport, they would be fine. They would be more than successful. And then you just saw maybe other coaches where you're like, man, that skill set's a little short. I'm not sure that the way that person carries themselves that that would be the first person I would offer a job if I was running a business. And so just seeing it as like you're running a small business with a transformational model, um, that's going to take a lot of different skills uh, to try to pull off. So as a head coach, you probably have some things that you're really strong in. Um, what do you think your superpowers were as a coach? The things that, you know what, you were really great at. Oh, man. That's a strong word. Uh, I don't know if I had any superpowers uh, from that. I, I know for sure I don't have any superpowers. Um, you know, I think just like consistency of just showing up every day, um, off season, in season, 
Um, I can say that like the job that I've done everywhere I've been has not been perfect, um, but uh, I never cheated my employer or the people that I serve um, out of time. And so I was strategic with the time and then, you know, utilize it well uh, and just tried to serve well. Um, made a lot of, you know, made a lot of mistakes along the way in every area of a program, but I never stopped asking questions and desiring to grow from those areas. And so if it was something as it could be the topic of recruiting, it could be player development, it could be utilizing a coaching staff uh, where when you're a young coach and you hire an assistant, they just stand there all the time and you're not very good at utilizing them. Um, and just trying to grow in that skill set of what does it look like to be able to provide an assistant coach an area of ownership, but also prepare them for it and make sure that it's in line with the organization. Uh, all that stuff was just growth over time that just never stopped. Um, so maybe just the desire to keep growing. Um, maybe that was pivotal. Maybe that was pivotal. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not sure, but, um, but certainly played a role. So let's talk about these, you know, you want your guys to be in the weight room. You want them to eat 4,000 calories. Like, how do you make sure they do that stuff? Well, there's nothing more powerful than, well, playing time. I mean, that's a great motivator. Uh, if you know that this is kind of the trend in the room, you don't do it, your natural gift better be pretty special. Peer-to-peer -peer leadership is huge. And so if you can get people on board, uh, that are speaking the same language and desire the same things, that's going to be way more powerful than anything that comes from the coaching office. So, and then you have to just attract who you are. You know, if you're bringing in people and um, you need them to, if they're just so far away in every area, they're going to be overwhelmed. So you, you have to find people that are close, you know? And so it's like, if they got to go from a, you know, a six to an eight, like you can do that, but if you got to go from a three to an eight, this is probably not, it's probably not fair for you to be in the environment because it's not going to be the best fit for you and it's not going to be the best fit for us. And so wherever you're at, whether it's in business or in sport, you have to attract who you are and then take a stride from there. I think that's the, those are the parts that you're accountable for. And I think you can get in trouble when you, you know, you get away from that principle of attract who you are. Um, and then you get away from the ownership aspect and the stewardship aspect of how do we make this whole thing 10% better? Uh, that's a very controllable variable. Good. So when I played in, at Goshen, uh, we had our center field fence, 355 feet. And this was back when the bats were pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. And the guy that played with me, he set the home run record. And I mean, every record he had. And the year he took over as a head coach, he moved the fences back like 40 or 50 feet. I think because ultimately he wanted to keep that record, and I think he still has it to this date. But I know when you took over at Wesley and you did the opposite, you like brought him in. Talk to me about like that because not only did you guys hit more home runs, which that makes sense, but your ERA was lowered as well. So talk to me about like one, you had to build a team, but you also did some funky things to your field and all of that. Was that like home field advantage or what was kind of going on there? there's a few variables. I mean, I certainly wanted to bring the fences in when I arrived. There was a graveyard out there, especially when you play in the Midwest, poor weather in the spring. I mean, a pitcher could throw a ball center cut and you could hit it a mile and not get rewarded. I didn't think that was fun to watch. 
Uh, and I didn't think it was a good reflection of the game from that standpoint. I mean, the field was bigger than LC State where the World Series is at. So it didn't make sense uh, from that standpoint. And our athletic director went into a production meeting about the new football stadium when we added football. And the contractor said, you know, Mark, you know, we got to start this conversation with a really tough topic. What's your baseball coach going to think if we have to move the fences in? And he's like, he's going to think I'm the athletic director of the year. And so, you know, we moved him in. Uh, it's, it's still deeper than Yankee Stadium, you know, and so, but we moved him in. But it's fascinating when you listen to like, you know, not winning teams, like, you know, like when Taylor University comes over, like they never complain about the size of the field. It's just like, toe them up and let's go play. Uh, and then other times when you play somebody, it's like, oh, if I played here, I'd hit 20 home runs. And it's like, it's actually not true. Uh, how many home runs land three foot over the fence? You know, one, right? I mean, balls are being launched, right? 30, 40 feet over a fence. And they're just like, oh man, if we were playing somewhere else, we'd be okay. It's like, no, no, like the outcome's the same. And so, I mean, we're 320 uh, down the sides. Um, and then, you know, it's 390 in center. So it plays a little short from the uh, left center gap towards the line. Uh, and a little bit in the right center gap towards the line, but there's not cheap shots leaving that leaving that park. Uh, but a victim mentality will make you think that's true uh, pretty quick. So Indiana Wesleyan, talk about that transition this year. Obviously had a super successful year, first you know World Series berth in their program history, and you've accomplished a lot there. Talk to us now about that to what you're transitioning into. Yeah, well, it was a tremendous way to to go out. Um, announced to the team the Monday before the conference tournament started, which was on a Thursday for us, that it would be my last year. Uh, that was going to ride out the postseason, uh, but I had accepted a position at Missinawa High School as the athletic director. And I was just super appreciative of how the guys responded. Um, you know, my reasons for doing it were very family focused. Uh, our kids came, come from tremendous families. Uh, so it wasn't like a hard sell to them to say, hey, I'm actually making this, this decision through some lenses that your parents have made decisions about for you. And uh, you guys responded really well, um, competed really well. It was a really fun way to go out, a special experience on, on so many levels, especially hearing from all the people that were connected to the program or just followed it from a distance, the players I coached at Judson reaching out that were like part of this story. Uh, it was really cool, um, really special moment. And I was able to take my son, who's 10, and my wife out there. Uh, and that was really special to share the moment in Lewiston with them for two weeks. It was, it was uh, pretty overwhelming. It was, it was incredible. Uh, so a really special group. I enjoyed it. My favorite picture from the experience is one where we're celebrating a moment coming out of the dugout. And I mean, it's all 26 guys. And you've got guys celebrating the guy who competes you know, with them at the same position, celebrating that person and even other teams out there just talking about how like your dugout is like pretty engaged. And it wasn't, you know, the rah-rah, you know, Bush League stuff. It's just this level of care that they have for each other. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we had players just like our, like myself and yourself and everybody, like we're going to associate with selfishness. Like that's just part of it, but we don't have to live there. And we have so many players that are that are talented and gifted and driven 
that were willing to give up something of themselves to celebrate and play with the guy next to him. And um, they just did that at a really high, high level. And, you know, it takes time to get to that place, but it was really rewarding to see, take a group of guys out there that cared that much for each other. And then also still have the success on the field. I think sometimes some people think it's like an either or instead of a both and, and um, it was, it was really rewarding. So, yeah. yeah. So you were now the CEO of a college baseball team. Now you're kind of the CEO and athletic director. And I like to use the word CEO if you're kind of at the top, but you're now overseeing all of these different sports programs at this school. Like what's your strategy there now moving from a head coach to athletic director? And how do you plan on, I guess, bringing your kind of magic touch to that new school? Well, it's a new challenge. You know, I'm excited about it. I think um, there's parts of the job in the first month where you're like, wow, this is like, such a wheelhouse situation right here. Like, man, I can see how God prepared me for this. This is fun. And then the next day you're like, oh my, <laughs> you know, like this is going to be a six month learning curve to, to figure this piece out. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. The people are awesome. I mean, really incredible. I mean, you know, you look at the high school coaches in this community, uh, you know, the stipends they get paid. I mean, they're, they're basically volunteering their time. And, um, and they're doing it with like such a high level of commitment, not just like during the season, but like this summer you have head coaches showing up every morning while the team's lifting uh, in the mornings. And so, and then they're doing, you know, training sessions as well, you know, within the IHSA guidelines. And uh, so they're, they're just I mean, a really, really committed group. And what I'm trying to do is just kind of look at every system and process that we have to try to see, is there anything we can do to like, tighten up certain processes that allow us more freedom to do other things. Um, and then, you know, ultimately it's, uh, man, corporate funding is going to be a really big deal because high school athletics is a hundred percent fundraised. You don't start with a budget. Uh, everything that happens in athletics is fundraised and we are considered a lower income area. And yet we're still having to, at times charge our student athletes player pack fees right and uh and so forth and and i would like to go ahead and over the next couple of years be able to connect enough with donors that have this you know a shared passion and, and vision and value system as us to to really meet the needs of our student athletes i mean i guess phase one uh, and then phase two to be able to provide camps and program opportunities for our student athletes to develop, you know, leadership skills, identity, direction for the future. Um, these things are so pivotal, you know, they're so pivotal, pivotal, they're so pivotal uh, at this point uh, in their lives that sometimes we can get distracted with just being busy as leadership and as leaders. And, you know, what does it look like to be able to create some programs that have space for those to really hit these three areas for these student athletes. So that, that's going to be the biggest piece, you know, long-term I'm excited about that challenge. Uh, but I'd love to see the funding get to a place of strength to where all the needs are met. And then we're able to actually develop programs that help that student athlete get a sense of identity, uh, a sense of leadership growth and direction earlier, as opposed to later in their lives. 
how do you fundraising? How do you get people excited enough to open up the checkbook and write the check? That seems like it's a tough thing to do. How do you plan on doing that? Well, I think like all, all I can go off is my experience, which is like that's limited, right? Um, at Judson University, we fundraised um, just seven hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars in that time there, and then we fundraised three hundred thousand for projects here, and then man another two three hundred thousand, you know, just to impact operational budget and so forth uh, over the course of, of my time there. Um, you know, there's a few pieces to it. For me, like prayer has been foundational, super foundational. I think, I mean, God created us in his image. Work ethic is a value um, that lines up with the spirit. Uh, but there have been moments where the Lord has just stopped me and just said, like, hey, I need you to stop just so you can see me be sovereign here. And there's a few times it's happened you know, in the coaching career that were like super obvious, like it's like you're hearing his voice almost audibly in those moments. But when I got hired at Judson, um, we were 0 for 15 on the first 15 recruiting visits. And we had to put together like an entire roster. That's stressful. <laughs> so I was working around the clock with it. I didn't have any full-time assistance. Um, I had two volunteers that could only make it to practice. So I was like recruiting the whole class myself. And I'm recruiting around the clock. We're 0 for 15. And I went and met with a mentor of mine. And I was talking to him about it. And we prayed together. And he was just like, hey, fast from recruiting for a week. And I was like, okay. And like, I fasted from recruiting for a week. I just entered this place of surrender and just handed over to him. And then it was like breakthrough. Um, at both places, I remember when I got hired at Judson, my last Sunday in our home church in Bourbon, Illinois, I remember where I was sitting and the Lord was like, I'm going to do things there you can't take credit for. And we had checks come in and support and the right people show up. It was incredible. Uh, but so much of it was just prayer. Um, and I don't think that's overrated at all. Um, the other piece is are your value systems of what it is that why you exist and what's being implemented, is that in line with the organization or the individual um, that has the means to provide funding? I think that's the other piece. And so if you're praying into this thing foundationally, um, but then also values align, um, there's a lot of times you don't have to make the ask. You know, that person just offers and says, hey, it looks like there's something happening here that's a little bit different. How can, how can we get behind it? Super good. Well, Rich, thanks so much. I mean, it's been really cool hearing about your experience, you know, rising through the college ranks and now taking it to the, the next level, able to help even the next generation. So this is really cool. So where do people go to get a hold of you, learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a social media presence. I have Facebook where I post pictures of my son uh, for the grandparents. Um, but so just email <laughs> Rich Benjamin for Rich Benjamin, the number four at iCloud.com. And uh, if you have any questions or follow-ups there uh, from that standpoint. Yeah, this is really good. Well, Rich, this has been a while in the waiting for me to get you on here and learn from somebody that's been there and done that. So thanks so much uh, for being a guest and the Dugout CEO. Appreciate it. Thanks, Casey.
Dugout Nation, so great to have Rich on the show. No matter if you're a coach, business owner, leader, I'm sure you got something out of it that you can apply in your life to become an MVP at what you do. Here are my big three takeaways that I learned from Rich. Number one, A players win championships. No matter how great a coach you are or leader you think you are or business owner, at the end of the day, it comes down to the people on your team. Plug a great leader in with a team and an organization full of unmotivated people that don't have the skill set, you can't win. You might be able to make them a little bit better, but to win it all, you need A players that are motivated, that have the natural gift set to be great at what they do. You have to focus on bringing in the right people. Get the wrong people, whether they're misaligned on values or they're not motivated, off the bus because they're going to scare away your A players. Recruit better people to join your team and challenge the current people in your organization. Number two, have a recruiting process. Do you have a compelling pitch to recruit great talent? What's in it for them? What makes you different than others that are trying to recruit them as well? Do you know what your person that you're trying to recruit really wants? What's important to them? How are you going to help make the vision that they have for their life, for their business, or their career happen? Figure out what they want, get to know them, ask good questions, and show them that you can be the one to help them get what they want out of life. Number three, wise people learn from other people's mistakes. Don't be afraid to pick up a book, listen to a podcast, surround yourself with people who have been there and done that. People that have already solved the problems you're looking to solve. Study their ways. Then you can put your unique touch on how they achieve success on your business or on your team, and then you can make it happen. Wise people don't learn from their mistakes. They learn from the mistakes of others. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP of what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to CaseyCavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.